I'm sorry to say it's the finale. I've utterly enjoyed my time with today's guest. It is the final part of this series. I've I've waited for it for such a long time. I've got through it today. I finished the book today, and it's this book over my right shoulder here, Pivot to the Future, and our guest for this magnificent series. Welcome back, Paul Nunes. Hello again, Aiden. Great to be back. It's great to have you back. We've had a little bit of a break here and I've caught up with my reading and we are going to go on to the second part of Pivot to the Future. And in this, you talk about the seven wrong turns. So you've looked at all these high achieving companies, these companies you call value releasers and what they did and what they didn't do. So I thought we'd start off with the seven wrong turns and then we'll We'll go the antidote for that in a way, which is the seven winning strategies of all, again, the common denominators you saw in all these organizations. And then we'll look a little bit at resource allocation. And if we have time, we'll squeeze in a little bit more here and there. But over to you, Paul, maybe to bring us through first the seven wrong turns. Well, you know, one of the things that we were asked again and again um, as we presented the materials and worked on it was this question of, all right, if we know what companies should do, why don't they? Or, you know, what are the things that keep companies from succeeding the way they would like to in this? So we gave a fairly systematic look at that. And while there were, you know, there's scores, hundreds of reasons why companies fail, we actually discovered that there were seven pretty important ways that we saw again and again um, that led companies sort of off the curve and off the right path uh, to jumping an S-curve. Um, and we call those the seven wrong turns. Um, and without sort of going through each of them, uh, I can just take you through a couple of them. You know, one of them that was interesting was creating a capital structure built to fail. Um, and in that section, we talk a lot about how, um, for whatever reasons, and there are a number of them, Starting companies, new companies and entrepreneurs um, will often build a capital structure of their company that's similar to a large company or they're, they're always they want to be successful and be a large company. So they often work to the model of a large company and the, the capital model. So a lot of times they'll invest in a lot of hard assets, factories, um, even talent, um, large amounts of talent, which. Uh, are not as flexible as some people might think. Um, and debt, uh, of course, and debt's a really interesting one because, you know, debt's always taken on in good times, but uh, can really become the anchor or, you know, the the storm that drags you under in, in bad times. You know, I'll give you one example. I don't know if we've talked about it earlier, but the People Express, the, one of the original U.S. low-cost air carriers, you know, it all sort of started um, with People Express. And the interesting thing was that whole thing of that when the big carriers wanted them out, when they became annoying enough and they entered the the, the New East, the, the New England, the East Coast corridor, all the other airlines basically lowered their prices to cost. People Express had to match it, and they didn't have wherewithal basically they were cash broke you know so the, the the cash started disappearing as they paid off their loans on the planes and everything else so they basically got into a cash crunch and that's what killed people express and so this idea of financial structure and your levels of indebtedness and and cash flow 
uh, are critical. So, you know, what we saw is is not thinking through sufficiently how your capital structure is going to actually support the business. Another one, you know, we we thought was interesting was serving regulators, not customers. You know, we say that the eventually the regulators come in and, and find out you're doing something like Airbnb or you know, Uber. So if you want to do cars, so there's all this regulation that's being, you know, circumvented, if not fully thwarted. And eventually the regulators and the law gets in there and you get tied up in the courts. And what we found was interesting that the companies that got most caught up with the regulators actually had a real disadvantage to be the first mover because it bought these other companies a lot of time to come in so that, you know, the, the, the lifts, the, um, all the other sort of, you know, taxi services and that they all got time as the, the, the leader got caught up in the regulators. But even more interestingly is the leaders oftentimes would look to regulators then to prevent the next coming up competitors, the, the other new entrants that were following behind them. Um, and so it was really interesting that we had some examples in there of companies that then, you know, sort of cried, you know, cried foul um, to the regulators. Um, but so losing that customer focus. And what happens is, as you're busy serving the regulators and trying to prove that it should be legal to, you know, have apartment rentals to third parties and figuring out what all the details, you know, should it be so many people allowed in the building and all that other stuff, all that other stuff actually takes you away from developing good new products. So you lose the customer focus while you're busy trying to solve the product for the regulators. And meanwhile, you can wind up with competitors that don't even have those problems because they're not even targeting that segment. So it's like, okay, yeah, instead of finding a, a way around regulation for a segment of your offering, it's like, well, maybe we'll just ignore that segment entirely and just not offer it and move on because that way we don't have to deal with the regulators. And you think you see that in like autonomous vehicles and stuff and all these things, right? You know, how do you get, it's like, well, autonomous vehicles on the highway versus in inner cities. It's like maybe it's just easier to say, well, okay, we'll agree immediately to only use it on the highway. Yeah. And that can circumvent this question of the regular saying, well, you know, I don't want, you don't know how to handle uh, autonomous vehicles in the city and it's dangerous, you know, in the city. And you say, well, yeah, but we can prove it over here. So anyway, so this idea of, interaction with regulators and what happens there. A um, lot of companies um, were held up and, 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 and lost out because they served the regulators and not the customer. Um, I think another interesting one is uh, losing your head, um, which we like to sort of the pun, but it's really the truth. Is that, you know, many companies we saw, whether it's Dell, whether it was Google and Yahoo, um, Google and Yahoo is good examples of, you know, the CEOs, the founding CEOs, the founders were both sort of, you know, left after the, the acquisition and the going public or whatever it was. And then in Google's case, they were called back, right, with Brin and that. But the interesting thing is realizing that, well, if we lose our founders, what are we going to put in their place? Who's going to do 
the innovation stuff. And again, we talked about managing to three horizons. So the companies that didn't actually grasp how important it was to have three horizon leadership would often let go of their innovators and their entrepreneurs that started the company thinking that, well, they're no longer needed. We've got, you know, we've got the product, we've got Yahoo, it's working. And we said, and what they, right? And you forget. And then what you realize is like, well, yeah, but everybody left in the company only really kind of knows how to make Yahoo work or make, make the search engine work. They don't really know how to make Google Maps. They don't really know how to make Google Maps work with, you know, restaurant reservation systems because they're search engine people or, you know, so this idea of, needing to make sure that your talent is more broad and that you're actually, you know, balancing a multi-horizon set of research initiatives. And all of that is often tied up with whether or not you've got the, you know, whether you've got your head on, whether it's the original head or whether it's the, you know, somebody else or other people and things that you've put in their place. But the key is you cut the, you know, you cut the head off the chicken and the body kind of runs around. <laughs> it's probably a pretty good metaphor. We found a lot of uh, headless chickens uh, in companies that uh, that thought they'd really kind of, you know, gotten there and, and didn't realize how much they needed their head. Do you know what I think is interesting is it, let's put the metaphors together here. Your metaphor of the shark fin is that. Sometimes the shark will bite the head off the chicken and it needs those three horizons that working all in tandem. And when you don't have that original entrepreneur there, that entrepreneurial spirit in the organization and it's run for efficiency or profit only, then you're in real trouble. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because it's all the thing we talked about, you know, the middle CEO, right? The, there's the founding CEO, then there's the middle CEO that kind of grows the company, scales enormously. You know, there's a scaling CEO that takes out the costs, um, makes huge profits, watches as the stock price grows because, you know, the company truly scales. There are really more coffee stores. There are really more of that. And then you get to the top. And, you know, and, and as we talked about, that was really the tradition in the past was to have this series of CEOs and CEO types. Uh, and often it was the fact that a CEO that was so dedicated to scaling and taking out costs and being Six Sigma really didn't have the vision and the leadership for bringing in the next things. And many times it was just a function of coming to the realization too late that, you know, well, we grew this company and created all this shareholder value by getting rid of all of our innovation. You know, talk, we talked a bit about eating your seed corn. And it's like, well, now I want, you know, now I want the innovators. Where are the innovators in this company? Don't give me, you know, why is nobody in this company an innovator? And it's like, well, you know, more than just did you fire all the innovators, it's like, did you create a company that actually welcomed innovators that actually had a place for them? Do innovators feel valued here? Um, you know, and do they do would a, a valued innovator, you know, would they believe that you have a three horizon vision and that most of the company does? Um, and so that whole thing of talent management that we spoke about as well is, um, is, is rolled up into that. Um, this question of do you have the 
the innovators around. I wanted to link in something, Paul, and, and I'm jumping ahead here, but it's, it's really interesting to this idea of losing the head is that often the head has the story, the company story, the vision, the mission, all that stuff in their head. And if they have been somebody who can articulate that to the organization, it drives a common vision, a common purpose. And this was something that you saw time and time again. And indeed, something that Accenture did well in their own wise pivot was constant storytelling of a vision of the future. Yeah, there's no question about that, which is, you know, you have to say it 10 times before people get it kind of once. Um, there's there's a million different, you know, books and stuff about that. I don't have to go out. It's, you know, like how you communicate and how you get people to actually listen to these. But the reality is, you know, even in our discussions uh, over time, a lot of this stuff is sort of simple on a certain level, but it's really pretty complex on another level. And trying to tell a simple story about how even at Accenture, you know, you're in custom coding, you're in package software, you're in enterprise systems, you're in cloud, you're in, you know, AI, you're in all these things, you're in security, you're in digital marketing. Um, You know, Accenture became the second largest, largest digital ad agency, but the second largest overall ad agency, I think, in terms of or whatever it was, right? You know, but this whole thing is like, so how do you tell the story? Like, well, how does security and digital ad agencies and it's like well it's all the same piece of the future of you know enterprise systems technology and digitally led enterprise systems and as the firm you know as the company embraces as every company has to embrace a digital future and digital systems that support the company of the future these are all the different pieces and here's how they kind of come together you know, even I'm obviously having a tough time sort of explaining that simply. <laughs> you can imagine what it's like. Yeah. And then it's like, well, yeah, but my job is really trying to sell an awful lot of digital security. And why don't we just focus on that? So having the big picture and communicating that, and then you know, the job is at the CEO's job, the CSO's job. In fact, actually, some of the research we did on chief strategy officers, um, which is, was really fun research. We found that there were seven hats that the, the chief strategy officer wears, and every chief strategy officer is kind of a mix of those different hats that they have to put on. But one of those actually was being hired to communicate the vision, the strategic vision. So sometimes the CEO does it, but sometimes it's left to the chief strategy officer that the chief chair said, like, okay, we've got, you know, particularly one that I can think of as pharmaceuticals. It's like, all right, well, we've got this big bang, you know, um, long fuse big bang a blockbuster work over here. We've got some generic stuff over here. We're making you know, generic drugs off brand and all this. Like, so what's the story here? <laughs> you know, uh, what, are, what are we telling the market? So, you know, what are we telling the market? Our plan is, and then, you know, related what are we telling our employees the big idea is the vision here um because a lot of times you know particularly like i say in pharma and big pharma it can easily become well we've got fiefdoms of people who are like yeah you know i'm doing this leave me alone and and so you wind up with more of a portfolio than um 
a really integrated and synergistic company. And so the challenge for the chief strategy officer across lots of industries and, and plays companies is this, well, how do they find the synergies and how do they create a unified story of like why that works? Paul, I think I, I'll be killed if I don't bring in this next one. And this one may feel like it's American centric or US centric, but it's not. You say here, one of these round turns is managing Wall Street, but that's a metaphor or an analogy for managing VCs or shareholders as well. People who want to get you to innovate, they may say out of one side of their mouth, we need you to innovate more, but then actually pummel you on the other side for actually spending money or not bringing in profits. And you say here, beloved startups that go public too soon find themselves stymied by investors who say they want more disruptive innovation, but pummel the company's shares and management when profits don't show up fast enough. And then on the other side, you say, mature companies likewise may be constrained by Wall Street analysts whose focus on day-to-day -day performance often misses the deeper disruptive trends and technologies unraveling the industry. Efforts to capture growing trapped value are postponed as investors furiously rewrite the script for the company's last strategy, initiating a sometimes fatal loop. That was a brilliant piece of writing that encapsulates a huge problem that still pervades many companies today. Well, it's a huge problem, and I'm not sure that we have all the answers for it in the book or even any of the answers, um, but it was definitely worth noting. And it's definitely what we saw is how companies can sort of fall off the track of, of making the right pivot. And what happens is exactly sort of laid out there. I'll tell you, there's an old bit of wisdom that says a person with one watch knows what time it is. A person with two is never quite sure. And the reason I like that saying is because if you've got investors and you've got leadership in a company, where you're going is never quite sure because you're, you're constantly trying to adjust for like, you know, so a, a privately held company or, a, uh, you know, uh, uh, an independent company can know its own vision and live to it. But when you've got shareholders and when you've got Wall Street involved, now it's everything is a compromise. Everything is a, a blend of the two. And that can be really difficult, as, as you can imagine, because the whole thing of, well, how do I admit to the street that I have a lot of competitors coming up that really need to be addressed and I need to take a lot of profits and start, you know, fending off and, and creating for the future to compete against this major threat. Well, I don't really want to tell the street that I'm under substantial threat, right? And particularly a street that's really kind of enjoyed, you know, a long stream of profits and even dividends, right? But so how do you go back off of dividends? And of course, you know, killing the dividend is one of the, the worst things you can do. And partly because it's a, it's a, for shareholder value, but it's partly because it's an admission that you need more money. But why should there be anything, you know, wrong with admitting, all right, you know, when times were good, we were paying you money, but now we need that money back to get ready for the next phase or whatever, right? But people see it as a complete, you know, failure on a company if they say, you know, no, we're going to cut back even a penny on the, the dividend. Because it's like, well, the company must be in trouble. Um, you know, one of the quotes that I loved was Jeff Bezos, who uh, said some version of, and we've quoted in the book, but, you know, it's like, I spend six hours a year on investors. 
an investor relations. It's like, you know, it's like because, you know, like Amazon, when you think about like Amazon, if Amazon were spent, if he had spent his time trying to, you know, mollify investors about how best to run an online bookstore, where would Amazon be, right? You know, nothing Amazon did was the best way to run an online bookstore. It was the fact that they they needed to install themselves as much more and realize that, you know, there was no competitive future in an online bookstore. There was a competitive future in the online everything store, but there was no competitive future in the, uh, you know, dominant competitive long-term future in the online bookstore. So the amount, you know, explaining to investors why you're not going to make a profit this year, explaining to investors why you have to buy all these robots you know, and robot companies to do supply chain. It's like, you know, the, the investors kind of get that you're to fulfill your vision. You're going to have to have the absolute best supply chain and most technologically advanced and low cost, you know, provision of supply chain in the world. But then you say, and we're going to do that by cutting the dividends. <laughs> we're going to do that by not turning over a profit this year again and, and investors get crazy so that's why we say you know it, it wasn't profound on a certain level but again and again we saw that the companies that could you know and i think if you say manage manage wall street versus managing to wall street is probably the the real difference right but if you're managing to wall street you're you're chasing your tail and you're very quickly going to get the a potential death spiral of you know, you know, not enough, not enough success, not enough money for everybody. Before we go to the seven winning strategies, this is this is a nice little segue. Is uh, somebody that you talk about in the book and a great great leader, Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo, and one of the things you talk about with her is how she communicated widely across the organization. But one of the places she communicated to was the street. So she managed analysts where she's like, look, we're reallocating resources. And, and I'm jumping ahead to that last segment that we'll talk about today as well, because you're going to have to take a step backwards to take a step forwards. And, and this is what I love about this book in particular is the, the now, uh, the now, the, the, the then and the future, this whole idea of the three phases that you're taking. A little bit of money from the now in order to invest in the future. You know, the, the now is not going to be happy about that, including the street or including the investors or including the analysts as well. So you really have to communicate very heavily there. Yeah. And, and more than just communicate, you have to bring them along. And she's such a great example of great leadership and great leadership at a time when things could have really gone wrong for what a lot of people were referring to as, you know, sugar water, right? Um, you know, Pepsi really showed that it was a lot more than sugar water. And, and a lot of the reason it's more than sugar water today is because of Indonesia's leadership. Um, so a great example, but that's exactly it. Sort of bringing through the things that, you know, we're not going to get out of this fantastic business of selling, you know, Pepsi. It's a, a remarkably strong and valuable brand that brings people a lot of joy, <laughs> Um, and it's a great product, but we're not going to achieve the growth goals we need by simply focusing on that because there's only so many, so much soda people can drink, particularly in a health, you know, uh, conscious environment. 
So we're going to need these next products. And, you know, if you look in the book and stuff, um, not to go too much you know, on a tangent there about her leadership, but it really is fantastic because we use Pepsi as a great example of, you know, this idea of the multiple horizons and that, you know, recognizing the, the, the good, you know, the fun for you, good for you, better for you. Um, model, right? You know, so the fun for you, it's like, yeah, you know, have some chips, have some soda, you know, once in a while, you know, life's not worth living if you're not having a bit of good, of a good time, right? But, you know, we also make Quaker oats and we make overnight oats. Um, and we have, you know, science. And so the way she actually pulled it, you know, we go into the book, the way she actually went in and changed the research. Because most of the research, not surprisingly, at the time she came in, most of the research was being done on how to create new flavors of the soda. And, or, you know, that it was all focused on the sort of Pepsi products. And I was like, well, no, you know, we're never going to get there with that sort of incremental innovation. And so she actually had to pull out the chief R&D lead and sort of, you know, work with that person and say, we need to rethink research across these three horizons. And, you know, not just simply do it off of, well, this is, you know, Pepsi is Pepsi. So we research Pepsi. It's a great example. And, and in there, there's loads of these examples in the book that we're not going to get to today. But the Pepsi story is great, even to the fact of hiring new type of talent. So when you're when you're thinking about that kind of pivot, you need to hire biotechnologists and all kinds of different skill sets that you don't currently have in the organization. We, we won't go there, Paul, because I'll, I'll be keeping you all day and you've given us so, so much time. So let's, let's pivot ourselves to the seven winning strategies. And as you say in the book, very few of the companies in your study adopted all of them, but value releasers successfully pursued at least one or more of these seven winning strategies. And again, each of these strategies has a great story or anecdote or organization that has demonstrated them. But over to you, Paul, to pick maybe your favorite or if you if you like, go through them all. Gosh, I'd like to go through them all, but I will just start with a couple of them. But first, the idea of the seven winning strategies was really the winning strategies for getting to the edge of the technology um, curve. And so we talked about trap value, and that trap value comes from having technology get ahead of where you are as a company, and so it creates this gap, right? And that's the sort of trap value. I'm not as technologically enabled as I could be, and so what would I look like of that? So you have to get to this horizon, but then the question is, well, where is the horizon, and how many directions could I take to get there? And so, you know, without getting too mathematically minded about it, but um, we did some research years ago on, you know, the efficient horizon of a company, right? Um, and it turns out there's like N dimensions that you can sort of map to. Long story short, if you're going to try and get to the edge of technology, you really can't just say that's what I'm going to do. You're going to have to pick a direction. You're going to have to pick sort of a vector and try and move your company there and then Next one. So what these seven are really seven different vectors, sort of seven different directions that a company can take in getting to the horizon. They should probably take all of them eventually. What we found actually is that most effective companies pick one or two to highlight for a period of time and then move along the other dimensions at a later time. 
So let's make that a bit more real with a couple of examples. You know, one dimension you can take, and the one I'll probably start with because uh, it's the most counterintuitive, is talent rich. So what does talent have to do with technology? Usually we think it's the opposite, right? It's a combination of talent and technology. Well, Volvo figured out at one point that a lot of its talent was all in mechanical engineers because it was all about safety, remember, and it was all about the car, and it was all about being a great mechanical car, but that they had a really homogeneous pool of talent that wasn't allowing them to do what they wanted to do. Now, you say, well, does technology and technology capability have to do with that? What they recognize is that in order to create a more diverse talent pool and exploit a more diverse talent pool, they could use technology and talent management software to actually understand what are the capabilities within their talent. You know, who went to art school maybe in, you know, as, and is now working as an industrial engineer for us. You, you know, you say you'd like to do that, but they, well, you can do that anecdotally and say, well, I found this person, you know, that somebody mentioned that they, oh, they went to art school. Hey, let's move over here. Or you can do it more systematically by saying, no, we actually have a system whereby we can record everybody's talent and experiences and broad talents. And then we can actually build teams of these people based on what we know about their backgrounds and capabilities and we can create more creative, more powerful, more um, future-oriented teams. But the recognition that you can't really do that until you have the data and the processing capability to do that. And so what Volvo did was they saw that exactly that way. They said, well, you know, we need to invest in talent management so that we can make a major change, talent management systems so that we can make a major change in the overall nature and capability of our talent and how we leverage and use our talent. And some of that even went to the, to the nature of, um, you know, bringing in external talent in terms of um, one of the examples I love is how they went to actually Pininfarina. And I don't know if anybody knows the name Pininfarina, but Pininfarina was the, basically the guy who designed most Ferraris and created a design house. Uh, the Pininfarina design house, which actually helped Volvo make a lot of its new um, new age cars. So when you see like, well, why isn't Volvo the box anymore? But that's the kind of thinking and the kind of talent and saying, all right, we, you know, we need these people in. And then it's like, well, who are they going to connect to inside the company so that we actually have a smooth transition? So we have design working with people who get the importance of design as well as safety and that. So it's a really fantastic transformation thing. And again, it's saying, we need more technology. We need to get to the edge of what technology is going to enable, which is world-class talent management. You know, even though we're an auto company, world-class talent management in terms of broad capability management, that's going to be a competitive advantage for us, and that's where we're going to go. Another one I found extremely interesting, and there's seven in particular that you cover in the book, all complete with examples. But this one, particularly because of the example, is network powered. Yeah, network powered was one of my favorite too. And really what we talk about there is um, two things. One is the power of the network of companies you can build. But the other one is more simply the power of the network in the sense of internet and internet of things. And one of the examples that we saw 
was a, a company I liked called Sleep Number. So what did Sleep Number do? Sleep Number created mattresses that were actually technologically enabled and actually essentially listened to, felt how people slept and recorded digital profiles of the sleeping person's sleep patterns. Um, basically, you were able to you know, tell whether they tossed and turned and how much they were sleeping and whether they were in REM sleep, deep sleep, etc. And you can say, well, so you know, why would that matter? It's like, well, if you have that data and can capture that data, then you can start to do things like let people know how well they slept the night before and how well they're sleeping in general and connect it to, say, their Fitbit and see, you know, well, are you running better? Are you doing more exercise in days where you've slept better? So you can start to build real connections between how well you're sleeping and how well you're feeling the rest of the day. Um, you know, one of the ones that I thought was really easy is, you know, you can predict heart attacks. Uh, it turns out that, um, you know, by seeing the pattern and seeing when people, you know, have heart attacks in their sleep, you know, maybe there's a way that we can prevent that, um, you know, based on various patterns of that. What was really interesting is they actually partnered with the NFL, the National Football League here in the United States, um, to monitor the athletes and see, well, how does the athletes and how does their sleep actually impact their performance on game day? Um, and what can we do if we know, oh, you know, the quarterback had a really bad night's sleep. Maybe they were worried about the game, whatever, but maybe they're going to be a little tired. So maybe we're not going to try so many, you know, quarterback runs or whatever. And it's not perfectly to know, you know, exactly now where all that data goes to. And it's one of the beauties of the use of technology and, um, you know, data mining and that and what we can learn the benefits that we're going to be able to capture in the future. But it all starts with this idea of saying, well, all right, it's all digitally connected. How do we use the power of digital monitoring and digital connection? Um, you know, one of the other ones that we've seen recently is, uh, you know, the iWatch, the Apple, it's not the Apple Watch, not technically an iWatch, but, you know, the Apple Watch keeping track of all of the nature of where you've been and everything else. Well, sure, it's great for health, but it can also be used for things like, you know, helping to find lost people. Um, and there's all kinds of, you know, sort of legal things, you know, proving geofencing and this and that, you know, I wasn't there or, you know, um, and again, even the same things of, well, should I have a watch? It's going to tell me 20 minutes in advance, you know, you're pretty stressed. You might have a heart attack <laughs> because lots of people who, who have your pulse and your blood pressure, you know, have a heart attack in 30 minutes. You might want to sit down. Um, so this power uh, of networks that we're just, you, we can hardly imagine right now um, is one of the dimensions that you can um, seek to vector to, to get to the horizon of capability. I just think, man, imagine what it's going to be like, even with the power of Moore's law, with the increasing acceptance of these tools, what it's going to be like in 10 years. And we're going to be looking at stuff and kind of going, oh, man, I can't believe we were doing that. What We were so dumb to be doing that, you know, whatever it was. Well, and the whole thing is like, yeah, exactly. You know, I did I, you know. How is it that people didn't get a warning 30 minutes ahead of time, you know, before they had heart attacks? Like, people had heart attacks? <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. they didn't know that they were, you know, 
Um, and so, yeah, the things we, you know, we, got, actually, we got a warning for a meeting, but not for a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the whole thing is actually, and I remember it distinctly in the cell phone days, the early cell phone days, but there was a saying, there's a saying in technology that you can tell an important technology more by its absence than its presence. And it, the key is like, once you've introduced the technology, it's more about how bad do people scream when you take it away? That's how you know. Uh, so, right? The, you know, people would rather, the, the surveys that they do of what, what people would tolerate sooner than give up their cell phone is amazing. It's profound. It's a, but that's kind of a good way of measuring, like, well, how important is the, is the cell phone? It's like, well, I would give up vacations. You know, people, one of them I remember is people would go without vacations sooner than give up their cell phone even for like a period of time i was on a plane paul i was i was giving a talk over in greece and i was coming back and we were landing into dublin and i heard a kid behind me talking to her mom and she's like mom you know what i'm really going to look forward to when we get home and i was like kind of going she's going to say her teddy bear or her room and she was she's like this kid was like five or six and she's like number one having the internet again <laughs> it's like oh no oh my god that's where we are with a five-year-old kid oh my god so you're dead right man well and the whole thing of how you know how boring the world is without constant information bombardment is you know it's it's different i tell you what man i i love I love black spots where there's no connection and you can just read or just be present, you know, and, and you're forced to. It takes a little while to to actually uh, acclimatize to, to the black spot. But let, let's get to the to the final part, because I'm conscious you have to go as well. The, uh, the way I love the, I love the way you tee this part up, because you say the seven winning strategies are the ski poles of the wise pivot. Love that language, man your stakes in the ground and your centers of gravity, and they determine the type of trap value that you'll target, where to find it, and which combination you'll need to release it. And throughout the book, Paul reminds us that this all depends on you, your life cycle, your risk appetite, your capital, your endowment of existing investments that you have, perhaps, for example, it's real estate. All So there's a different combination for everybody so you, th there's no like magic bullet here it all depends on you and also what i love about the book is it's almost like you can pick where you are when you read it deeply and understand it as i hope you will do from even from this series but also buy the books i think they're fantastic books as well but the the last thing to understand here is you talk about the wise pivot which is this big overall pivot but then there's resource allocation, and this involves innovation. So as one pivot, financial pivot itself, and then the people pivot. And these are the three main aspects that you focus the rest of the book on. Yeah, and this was really in response to the question, which was more than fair of, well, you know, Paul, you, talk, you like to talk about strategy as resource allocation, but what more can you tell us about how we really do that as a chief strategy officer, as a top executive in a company, you know, what is good resource 
allocation look like or you know what what does it mean in in terms of pivoting to the future so we really drove down on that and tried to create a, a model of how are companies thinking about it and how do they do it and what do they change and what we came up with was this sort of three-pronged nine component model of you can think of them as levers um, but they're really kind of switches in spectrum of left to right they're uh of aspects of innovation, finance, and people in companies that kind of determine the nature of the model that they're applying. And what we see again and again, and it's not new, it's not new to us, is this idea that companies, um, you know, a dominant model forms in an industry when there isn't the ability of, you know, when technology innovation slows down in an industry, when there's a lot of competitors kind of quickly moving, we come to sort of the, the maturity of an industry and what you get is a dominant model. So whether it's, um, you know, Starbucks or Costa or something else, right, it's uh, the coffee shop model looks the same, whether it's, uh, you know, Uber or Lyft or something else, they all kind of work the same. Um, and so the question was, where did we see how companies were changing the dominant model and what levers were they pulling to do that to get themselves out of the dominant model and kind of break new ground through strategies, resource allocation? So the first one is in how they thought about innovation. And there, there were a couple of um, ways to do that. One was about whether or not innovation is centralized or decentralized. So you have to choose whether or not to put all your eggs in kind of one basket and bring innovation in-house um, sort of to the center of the company or whether you really want to diffuse it across all the pieces of your business. And that really is a strategic choice. And so one of the examples we used in the book was the New York Times, believe it or not. And it turned out that the New York Times really had a very distributed approach, even through the beginnings of the Internet, to innovation and in, in technology, the the bit the, you know the small amount was actually investing in innovation, and they tried to get those pieces to work, and then they realized that it wasn't going to happen until they were able to bring it all together um, and really focus on the major problem of how they were going to make the internet and digital delivery of the content work with the rest of the company. So one of the levers that New York Times pulled and 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 rather successfully, depending on how you want to look at it, but it was critical that they couldn't, they could no longer just leave their R&D and, and uh, future hopes in a very decentralized and diffused manner. Uh, you know, similar to that is the control question, which is, is R&D and the future going to be directed or is it going to be let a thousand flowers bloom or, you know, let, see what happens and it's kind of a you know and so a good one there is an example to help people people are you know old enough to kind of remember xerox park but park was a unified think tank for xerox that's credited with inventing things like the computer mouse and all sorts of things but there was a case where xerox recognized it wanted to bring together it wanted to centralize versus decentralize some research but it also made the choice that it was going to be undirected rather than directed research. They weren't going to tell them what to do, what to figure out. Um, and in this case, it was sort of a uh, it's sort of an unfortunate or negative example because what happened is that 
while they had centralized the research, they weren't able to actually bring it into the company because it wasn't actually sufficiently directed. You know, what they were researching wasn't directed enough to what the company was actually doing. And so that whole ability to make the connection. So, you know, that's why Apple was able to, you know, make more hay out of the, the computer mouse than Xerox themselves were. Um, and so there's a lot of examples here. We talk about Walmart, too, um, as their ability to actually direct and how Walmart's online presence improved when they became more directive of what their research and development was really doing. Um, and then the last one in innovation is sort of your aspiration, which is um, this question of you have to decide, am I going to reinvent the, you know, the industry? Am I, is that what I'm all about? Or am I really more about being a fast follower or being, you know, more focused on capturing remaining incremental value or sustaining innovation? Um, you know, companies as a resource allocation question need to know where they stand on that because the answer for how much money and resource you need and capability you need to reinvent an industry is very different than what it takes to kind of create sustaining value. A sustaining innovation. Now, there's two more areas that we talk about in the book, and I'm not going to give you all the details. Got to save something for for reading. But there's an area of finance. This question of um, you know how do we do resource allocation in finance, and how do we do it in people? Um, and in finance, there's three areas. There's fixed assets, working capital, and human capital. But the example I really liked there that we found that was interesting was pulling the lever in a different direction in fixed assets because what geo did, um, which was uh, Mukesh Ambani's uh, reliance play to 4G in India. Geo is a company that invested in putting in all kinds of new infrastructure around 4G. Um, so instead of actually getting out of assets, which I've talked a lot about in all of our previous discussions, it was really an example of pulling the lever a different way, which was putting in new, much, much cheaper 4G technology because the costs had come down so dramatically that he actually accelerated the obsolescence of all of the 3G and all the technologies before that at recognizing that nobody would really want 3G even at any price if there was affordable 4G technology. Uh, and LTE. So uh, that's just one example of where you can, when you rethink your resource allocations and, and assets, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is you've got to get out of and try and minimize assets in any business. And that's generally true. But in, but in fact, Geo found tremendous success in recognizing the power of new, much cheaper assets to create a new model. And then in people, one of the interesting areas that I really liked was we looked a lot about artificial intelligence and, um, you know, particularly things like even robotics and how it was going to reinvent industries. And what we saw is really interesting was the example in Mercedes where they put in robots to help build the cars. And it turned out that it wasn't working as well as they had hoped. And they found that if they actually tweaked the system to put a little bit more of the human input into it, that they had to sort of back off the completely automated assembly and that the partnership between humans to do what they do best and what 
robots to do what they do best actually created a better process design than simply robots by themselves. And not simply because they didn't have the cost-effective technology and then, you know, maybe someday it will eventually be better than humans, you know. But that at least for the foreseeable future, this combined process was a much better fit because you have to take into account how humans work best as well as the best things that robots can do. And so the Mercedes example and, and the details of that are really quite fascinating as well. There, there are so many examples in the book, great stories, great examples from all the research that Paul and his team have run. And these people, the value releasers, these companies, the value releasers throughout the book, NVIDIA is in there, PepsiCo, there's a deep dive on that, Uni Unique Flow, a company that went against the strategy, the, the w wisdom of the crowd, they went the other way and uh, invested and all this has panned out since. So there's so many stories within the book that I highly recommend buying a copy of the book. It's on Kindle as well as a hard copy as well. All that remains for me to say, because Paul is meeting one of his former colleagues from Accenture. And I want to remind you, Paul was the Global Managing Director for Thought Leadership at Accenture Research. He led the company in developing groundbreaking insights into technology and strategic business change. He is the co-author of four books, Big Bang Disruption, Jumping the S-Curve, Mass Affluence, which we didn't cover because it wasn't part of this trilogy, and this book, Pivot to the Future. And I am very, very grateful for first getting a deep dive into your work and then spending this time to you. I have to tell you, off, off air, Paul and I spent hours talking as well, down rabbit holes here, there, and everywhere. And it was an absolute pleasure to do so and spend time with the man. He was all those things for Accenture. I can tell you what, from my first-hand experience, he is a great guy and a great thinker. And, and I highly recommend anybody who's looking for a keynote speaker or somebody to be on a panel, reach out to Paul. Paul, for those people, where can they find you? They can find me on paulnunis23 at gmail.com. And Paul's also on LinkedIn as well. And I'll link to, I'll, I'll link to Paul on LinkedIn in any of the excerpts that I, that I share. Paul, thank you so much for all the time you've spent with us. Thank you, Aiden. This was great, great fun. Really was um, a pleasure. I learned as much talking to you as I, I conveyed. So thank you for our, our great conversations and for giving me the opportunity to share some time with your viewers. And I look forward to, man, I, I, I have a feeling we're, we're going to meet again. In the we're going to actually meet physically in the future as well. Oh, there's no doubt about that, even if it's just for a pint. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, man. Thanks, Aiden.